So Chad started us into First Thessalonians last week, and um, I think we got five verses through, or, or halfway through five. Um, I'm just going to read from two to the end of the chapter, and then I'm going to take five uh, through ten today. So First uh, Thessalonians, actually just the whole first chapter. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we not say, need say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. There are, um, how many of you guys have flown? Has anyone flown on an airplane? Probably all of you. Have any of you flown on an airplane lately? No, it's a little harder to fly. So, um, but, but you still can, and there's still this thing that they do. There's necessaries that they do at the beginning of every flight before the plane takes flight, right? And that is that a flight attendant will get up to the front of the cabin and communicate to the passengers some stuff that's pretty important before each flight, right? And they'll usually do it in demonstration too, okay? So they'll talk about oxygen masks, how they will drop down in emergency, what you do with them, how you put them on properly. They'll show you that. They'll talk about flotation devices usually. They'll talk about emergency exit doors, where they're located. They will point to them. You know, they'll make sure that you, you, you know all these things that are supposed to be extremely important in case it all goes down, like in case something wrong occurs. Um, what they're telling us is actually even life-saving, potentially, if something happens. And the question is, does anybody care? Like, I don't. Like, I, I stopped listening because I've flown so many times in my life, and it's the same thing that I just don't really pay much attention anymore to what it is that they're saying. It's recited at the beginning of every single flight, and, and sometimes it's just, I think for me, it's just become old and it's become common. And I think, I think that's even true of the attendants a lot of the times, the people that are actually doing. The, have you seen this? Like on social media or YouTube, um, sometimes someone will pull out their phone and they'll record the flight attendant doing it because they're doing it in some new playful way or something like that because they're just bored of doing it. 
So they'll start um, making a drama out of it, or they'll start doing it with a dance, you know, or with a song, or something that's really clever, that, that really doesn't communicate, like, the seriousness of the information, right? Like, we need to hear and know what it is that they're telling us, and it could be a matter of life and death. When something gets old, we tend to lose our passion for it our urgency for it, our believability that the people actually need to hear what it is that we're saying, that it could actually save and change their lives. And I, can, I believe that we as Christians can also get this way with our message, with the one that God has given us, our old gospel message. So the question is, how are we communicating it? Or are we even communicating it at all? I, I love this opening chapter of Thessalonians because it reminds me of the importance of the gospel and, and the effects of the gospel. It reminds me how the gospel works, which is going to be the title of this today. How the gospel works. All right? And so the first thing I want to bring out, or actually what I really want to bring out, is that there, there's a flow there's a flow to how the gospel works, and it goes like this. The gospel comes to us, the gospel works in us, and then the gospel comes out of us. That's the gospel flow. That's the nature of what the gospel does with anybody who's experienced it on a salvific level. The gospel comes to us, it works in us, and then it comes out of us. Amen? We good with that? All right, we're actually going to see all three of these clearly at work in these last five verses of chapter one right here. And um, as Chad brought out last week, Paul here is speaking to a new church. He's speaking to a young church that was only about a year old when he wrote this. So you guys remember the story. If you go back to Acts, mostly chapter 16, um, maybe, maybe pieces of it in chapter 15 and 17, but mostly Acts 16, we have Paul moving the gospel towards Asia. He had plans to go into Asia, and the text says that the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. I don't know what that means exactly. I don't know how that came down or what was said or what kind of roadblocks were put up, but the text tells us, Luke tells us there, that the Spirit wouldn't, said no. Paul, you can't go over here and preach the gospel. So what Paul does is he starts to come down and backtrack. He's like, okay, I'm going to Philippi. I got some things to do there. And on his way to Philippi, as he's passing through the region of Macedonia, he stops off at this place called Thessalonica. The text says that he was there for three weeks. Three Sabbath days he preached in the synagogue. And we know Paul that he always was in the marketplace as well. Three weeks he was in this town. And then, and then he left. He went on to Philippi. This letter right here from Paul is written to that church that he communicated with for only three weeks, a year earlier. Um, this is a year later, that quick, right? And, and so this, my point is this. This is an infant church at the time. It's in its infancy. It's only a year old, but it's vibrant. It's active. It's exciting. This church has not stagnated in any way. It's firing on all cylinders. We can tell that just from what we're reading here in chapter one. There is something 
um, that is special about a church plant if you've ever been involved in one. And I wouldn't really consider like what we've done here a church plant because it was more of a merger. There was already an existing church here. Um, but um, I often think back to the Doors infancy, um, what, what we did up in Three Rivers 10 years ago. I um, often consider what it was that made it so vibrant and active and exciting because it was when that church started. There was something, you knew that something special was going on. And I thought, what is that? What is that about a church plant? And you'll hear that about church plants, like there's commonalities of just something unique and special about it. And I think a lot of that is due to a few things. I think one of them maybe just be the, may, may be the unknown of it all. That it's all, there's, um, there's so much that you don't know when you start something like that. I think whether you like it or not, we as Christians are made, are built by God to actually thrive on the unknown. When we step out, we tend to step out in faith and in trust in him, which is exactly where he wants us. It's exactly where he wants us. And we will then at that time when we don't have expectations or things that we're pushing on his agenda, we'll see him at work in ways that sometimes we otherwise won't. I think the unknown is very good for us. And so I think part of it's just the unpredictability of what goes on in a church plant. And with that, the possibility of what God might do, of what might occur. There's a freshness about a church plant that's refreshing. It's invigorating. And in that, people seem to be more apt to and rally behind a common vision rather than to shoot holes in it. That's what tends to happen as a church is established and it goes on. Is we, we go from buying into the vision to finding flaws in everything we can. It's just human nature and sinful nature. It's what we do. This is why we ruin churches. I, I think the people involved in a new church plant seem more willing to sacrifice than they are to just be served makes a huge difference, changes the personality a lot. And with, with all these components firing, there is life, there is excitement, there is movement, and it is good. And, and then over time, that life and that excitement and that forward momentum seems to wane. It seems to dull, and the, the movement slows down, and it becomes common. There's an old saying that new, fresh works seem to go from man to movement to monument. From man to movement to monument, meaning that you can, you can have um, this vision that, that starts with a man. It's inside, and he, he knows that he has to go and he has to do this thing. And so he goes and he does this thing and he makes a statement. He blazes a trail and other people around him pick up on it and it spreads like, like a good cancer. <laughs> and it attracts these people and they get on board. And then you, you have this thing that went from man to movement. Now you have a movement happening. But then after a while, as the excitement disappears, sometimes those things don't even exist at all. The vision's gone, the people are gone, and it's become a monument. It's become something that you go and you just see and then remember about the good old days. I pray that this church never becomes a monument. Never becomes a monument. I pray that there's never a day when I drive down this road out front and I look over at this building and I say, I remember when the gospel used to come out of there. I hope there's never that day that you and I do not lose our fire, our passion 
for this movement that is all about the person and work of Jesus Christ transforming and saving people that don't deserve it. That's what we are here. That, that is what we are here to buy into and to get behind and to be excited about and to be busy with is the work of him. He's, he's worth us being passionate about. He's worth us being active over. And if we continue to be, then this will not become a monument. This will be an ongoing movement that forever, eternally impacts this community and the people in it. Praise God. Right? This is what we're a part of. This is what we've been called to be a part of. So, so the question is, how do we present, uh, prevent the stagnation? How do we um, prevent the movement from becoming a monument? And no matter how many ways I cut it, even the things that I just mentioned, um, they all lead back to the same place. And that is that we continue to make the gospel, our gospel. You guys understand the difference? Is the gospel your gospel? Or is it just somebody else's? We continue to make the gospel our gospel. We own it every day. We buy into it every day. We know that we need it as much as we need air and food every day. We need the gospel. So we continue to grow and depend on, be amazed by, the life-giving gospel, which means that we never, ever, ever graduate from it. We never graduate from it. I think you guys know that about us now at the door. You hear the word gospel over and over and over again. You may get sick of it. Don't get sick of it. We, we don't come in by the gospel, get saved, get our ticket to heaven, and then move on to other things. The gospel's it. It's the beginning of our salvation, and it's the end of our salvation, and it's everything in between. Everything depends on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think we see that when we look in epistles, right? Like these apostles were probably pretty heady with a lot of theology and probably could have talked about a lot of stuff. This is what everything comes back to for them. You know why? Because it is everything. It's everything. And it needs to be everything for us. So we need to stay firmly fixed on it, proclaiming it to ourselves, proclaiming it to each other, because the gospel works. And in this text, we get a clear picture of how the gospel works. Are you ready? Uh, you got, are you guys sleeping? Or like, are we good? Like, what are we, do I need to start yelling? All right. Number one, verse five. And I know that Chad went through some of this. He went through the first, like, we kind of have like a 5A and a 5B because the original text never had numbers. You guys know all that. And so the numbers are not always properly placed right. But we're going to come in at just verse 5, and I'll recap maybe a few things he hit on last week. Okay, which is, first of all, um, this, that the gospel is spoken, it's proclaimed, it's heard. So it's a word. There's a gospel word. As he hit on last week, the gospel absolutely comes by way of word. Paul says in Romans, right, for faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That comes somewhere. In Romans chapter 10, he talks about how will they hear if we do not preach, right? So, so there's, a, there's a mouthpiece that comes and delivers, heralds, proclaims the good news of God to others. The Apostle Paul says, also in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the what? Power. The power of God unto salvation to all who believe. In other words, we have this spoken word of the gospel, but this word is not just an empty word. 
They're not just empty words. It's not just our words that we come up with and that we produce when we deliver the gospel. And thank God for that. Because I, I, I think that if the gospel depended on us, no one would be saved. Nobody would be saved. Praise God that our gospel words are not alone, but that there's something else attached to them. Paul says it here in 5. Power, Holy Spirit, full conviction. These come, these accompany the spoken word of the gospel. In other words, the gospel word, when it saves, is not alone. It has company. The word for power is, in the Greek, dunamis. Thank you. And it's where we get our English word? Dynamite. What do you think of when you think of dynamite? You think of something strong and powerful happening. You think of an explosion, right? In other, in other words, it's, it's something like, it's something that goes off in us when it comes to us. It's something that goes off in us, courtesy of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit then grants to us through that conviction so that we can feel and so that we can know and so that we can see and believe that we're on the wrong side of God, that we need a positional change, allowing us, causing us to beg what much I do to be saved. See, the explosion rearranges something inside of us. It throws a switch that causes something else to go on that wasn't previously there. But it takes something from outside of us to make it happen. And that's why the Spirit of God is involved in this. The act of salvation is not purely an act of man or an act of intellect or an act of reason or an act of the will of man. It's none of those things. It's not primarily an act that comes about due to how good we can witness to people or argue with people or answer questions. Salvation is a supernatural act that requires the words of life coupled with the spirit of life. Jesus teaches this clearly to us in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, where him and Nicodemus have a little secret meeting in a back alley so that nobody sees what Nicodemus is doing and who he's meeting with, right? And they have a conversation about a subject that's known as being born again. How is one born again, right? And Jesus then unpacks how one is born again to Nicodemus, right? And what does he say? He doesn't give Nicodemus anything that Nicodemus can do. He says, the only way a man is born again is if the Spirit of God who goes where he will, that is like the wind, that does what he does, comes upon you. That's it. It's, it's actually a supernatural act that someone can be saved, that man can be saved at all. And when he is saved, when you see it happen, you can know that God was present doing a work. It's a complete supernatural act. To be born again or saved is a supernatural event, not a human one. It's God, through his gospel word, doing a supernatural work. That's why we can be confident, guys, when we share the gospel rather than scared. Let me say that again. Because it's a supernatural work, we can be confident when we share the gospel and not scared. How many of you get terrified? I do. There's times that I shy away from it, that I step away from it. There's times that I don't, I don't um, willingly meet what I know God has put in front of me because I may say something wrong. They may ask me a question that I don't have an answer to. And gosh, if they do that, there's no way they're going to be saved. 
What does that tell you about my thinking? That every bit of it depends on me and how I do it and what I do. And I praise God that people's eternal state does not depend on you or me. How scary is that? How horrible of a thought is that if it depends on us? No, it depends on God. And he can take anything and anyone with, with various levels and abilities, with Bible knowledge and the gospel knowledge, to wake the dead. Anybody he wants. You know why? Because it's a supernatural work. It's a work that God does. That makes me want to go share the gospel. That makes me want to walk out and be bold and to be confident, not in my old skill level and ability, but, be, but in his, because he's present in that. He's present in that. And Paul's saying to these guys, we're, we're certain. We are certain that God did a work in you with our gospel because it's fully affected you. Because an explosion went off in your life and out of your life and in your midst. We see the effects of the explosion. It didn't just come in word, he says. Notice that, how he speaks here. It didn't just come in word, but it came in power and spirit and conviction. Otherwise, you guys would not have responded the way that you have. That's basically what he's saying to them. Right? So he's, he's basically saying your, your conversion is legit, like it's real. So the first thing we see about the gospel, how the gospel works, is that it's supernatural, and that supernatural work comes through the word. Okay? Number two, the gospel that saves comes not only in word, but also in conduct. Also in conduct. Look at the backside of two or uh, of verse five, and actually six as well, where he says, "You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit." Um, we see here that the gospel came to the Thessalonians not only by the apostles' words, but also by the apostles' lives by how they actually live, their conduct. The gospel is not just proclaimed in our word, even though it's primarily proclaimed in our word, but it's also proclaimed by our lives. It's also proclaimed by what we do, not being perfect, but living in a way, directionally, that parallels the message that we speak, right? The gospel that we preach is actually authenticated, we could say, by our lives, by how we live. In other words, the apostles didn't come to the Thessalonians for personal gain. We've all known some of these guys, right? You can turn on your TV and see them go. He didn't come to them for personal gain. They didn't come to them in hypocrisy. They didn't come to them complaining about how bad Christians had it and how bad Christians are mistreated. Woe is us. You know, everyone else is a jerk, you know. They, they didn't do that. They didn't come in a shady way, a fraudulent way, devoid of lives that lined up with what they said. Their lives lined up with the news that they brought to the Thessalonians. Okay? And he's going to actually, when we get into chapter 2, he's actually going to focus more on this. Like the ways how their lives lined up with their message. The point is, their message and their lives agreed. They didn't disagree. We need to hear this. I need to hear this. Their message and their lives agreed. And this is the challenge, isn't it? This is the challenge for us. This is the challenge for the Christian that our lives and our actions should 
be lined up with or authenticate the word that we proclaim. Because it's easy for us to sit around and, and bag on statements, like preach the gospel in all you do and when necessary use words, right? We know that's erroneous statement. Like he's already spoken to that, right? But at the same time, there's really nothing less convincing about the gospel message we declare than when it comes from a person whose life reflects nothing of which they proclaim in attitude or conduct with no gospel effects. This is partially why I think the church's message has become largely ignored, largely ignored, even unbelievable in some ways. Because we're, we can be so loud and we can be so vocal about the things that we hate and the things that we disagree with, with pride and with anger, while promoting, supposedly promoting a man whose life and message came to save those who he disagreed with in humility and love. It doesn't look right. It doesn't line up. We love to point out all the ways that people are wrong with no gospel accompanying any of what we're doing or how we're doing it. And you know what that is? It's a contrary testimony. It's a contrary testimony. Paul says, we didn't do that with you. That's basically what he's saying here. We didn't do that with you. You heard our words, you saw our lives, and they agreed. They agreed. Our treatment, conduct, and actions all lined up with our proclamation. The testimony of Paul's lips lined up with the testimony of his life. Authentication. And it was noticeable, and it was apparently compelling. Like he got people's attention. And so this isn't an either-or thing, word or life, but a yes and yes. This is a yes and yes thing. Okay? If you just witness with your lips and not with your life, that's hypocrisy. And it's highly suspect. It's highly suspect. If you just witness with your life and not your lips, that's cruelty. You know what I'm saying? You're like the person who's been healed by a medicine and then keeps it a secret. We need to use our words to share the reason for the hope that lies within us. And we need to use our lives to show people that it's real. That there's power. That Jesus saves and transforms. Even the most unlikely people. I'm looking at a few right now. Unlikely people, right? We're all in good company here. Nobody in here, I don't think, could put up their hand and say, I'm here because I did it. None of us did it. In fact, none of us, I think, would put up our hands and say, I can't believe that I'm even living the way I do or desiring the things I, I do or helping people and loving people the way that I do. No, it ain't you. It's him in you. That, that's, that's why we're able to do anything of any eternal worth that glorifies God is because of him in us, right? And so we let that have full effect in us every day, him, not other things that compete for him, him, so that he can have full effect coming out of us. And people will know who it was. And our proclamation will line up with our lives at that point. It will line up. There's a saying. It has its problems, every saying does, but I kind of like this one. Um, the only Bible that most people will ever read is you. 
Now, I know that there's some like that falls short in ways, but I want you to think about what it does say. Because it's true. Most people will never pick up and open and read a Bible. So how will they know what the Bible says? How will they know the good news of the message? It's by looking at their coworker, who's a Christian, and seeing how they live, not just how they talk, not just what they hate or what they're against, but how they live, how they love, that we can actually bring forth and proclaim the glories of God, the heart of God, the love of God towards a lost world by how we live, by how we live. Now, this is bad news that we're the only Bible that some people will read, uh, but it could also be exciting depending on how you look at it. <laughs> I choose to look at it as a, a good challenge. You know what I mean? Because I will always have sin when they see it. You know what the difference is when I sin? That I admit it to them that I admit what I just did, and they can see my repentance. They can see my heart for righteousness rather than for wickedness, right? That, that too is a testimony. That too is a life that lines up with our proclamation, is even in how we repent, how well we say I'm sorry, how well we feel bad when we've stepped on somebody. Like all that matters. All that matters, and it all tells a story. The point is, obviously, um, what you speak and how you live it matters, and God will use it. So how does the gospel work? It works in word, it works in power, it works by the Holy Spirit, it works by conviction, which we're gonna get to a little further, um, as is evidenced in our lives. It comes to us, it works in us, and then next it comes out of us. Let's see how. And this is gonna be 6B, we'll call it. Gosh, it's getting confusing. 6B all the way to nine. So the back of six, which says, you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Archaea. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in those places, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned from God, or sorry, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Okay, I'm going to go out on a ledge and, and say that something happened to these guys. Like, do you see that there? Is that a fair statement? Something happened to these guys, like big time, like radically. I mean, again, this letter was written a year after they first heard the gospel, after the reception of the gospel, and it has spread. It has spread far. Their lives, their words, and their allegiance right, has all been made known. Paul says it's gone forth everywhere. We don't need to tell tall tales about our three weeks in, in Thessalonica a year ago. We don't have to tell people how that went down. Everybody knows how it went down. Everybody knows what God did with you. It's loud and it's clear, right? Their conversion is unable to be ignored. It's unable to be ignored. These guys are on fire and they're for real. And here's the deal. The gospel that came to them is now unable to stay in them. The gospel that came to them is now unable to stay in them. It's pouring out of them. It's blowing out of them. It's coming out. It's coming in their words and it's coming in their lives. So the first thing the gospel does when it does a work in us is it finds a way out. It finds a way out. 
right? We don't hide it. We don't hoard it. We don't keep it to ourselves. We don't bury it. We don't forget about it. We don't pass it off like a fly landed on us. You know what I'm saying? A bomb went off. An explosion. Explosions have profound effects that are usually noticed. And when it does, when this happens, we go from gospel recipients to gospel carriers, right? It affects everything. Another way the gospel comes out of us is in repentance. Repentance. Changed lives, right? The turning from our old sinful games to his game. The gospel does that to us. Paul references full conviction in verse 5 which results in repentance, what we see in verse 9, which is, you know what return, repentance is? It's not a bad word like a lot of us think. Repentance does not mean clean yourself up. Try harder, do better, which unfortunately a lot of Christians are taught. That is not true. It is to turn. It's purely directional. It's something we can all do when the Holy Spirit prompts us to do it. In other words, we were going this way, and now we're going to turn, and we're going to go that way. It's a turning. That's repentance, right? How you turn, Paul, Paul kind of says here, to, to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. They didn't need to sit around and deliberate when their conversion occurred about what would stay and what would go from their lives. Like, they didn't sit around like, with a scale, and balance things out. Okay, what can I keep that I used to do, that I used to believe in, that I used to desire after? What can I keep? What has to go? They didn't do that. They didn't seem to consider what they were able to hold on to or um, get away with, with their old life, right? They knew and they turned. The gospel went into these people and it did something in them. And I, I'm going to say this, like, I've seen a lot of really cool stuff in my life, um, but there's nothing cooler to witness than a real conversion. There is nothing on earth that compares to seeing a wicked, evil, sinful, God-hating human being all of a sudden cry out with their words and their lives, what must I do to follow Christ? It doesn't make sense. You know why? Because it's supernatural. <laughs> It's a work that only God can do. I even think of, of me, the way that, that I used to think pre-Jesus um, was not good, like most of you. The things that I lusted after and desired after, the way that I thought, the way that I viewed and treated people um, was all extremely contrary to how God would have me do it, but I didn't care. Like, I, I, I did those things because I wanted to do those things. That's how I wanted to live. That's how I wanted to be. I didn't know any different. I never sat around going like, oh, is this good or bad? Does God care? I didn't, all that mattered was that I cared. And then all of a sudden when I get saved, that all gets thrown on its head. And it's not because I went inside and tried and started like reconfiguring the way I'm wired. It's because he went inside and reconfigured the way I'm wired, the way that I think. It wasn't that I went and I got cleaned up so that I could come to God. No, I, like Christ came to me and he's clean, he cleaned me up. He's cleaning me up now. That's his job. Again, it's a supernatural work. And that's why it's so awesome when you see 
conversion occur. When you see true repentance, someone who was going every bit away from God as they could to now to God, no matter what the cost is going to be, that's a supernatural act. That's one of the raddest things that you could ever witness. And I love seeing it in you guys too. It's not just like the initial conversion. It's the ongoing transformation. It's the ongoing conversion that continues to happen in every single one of us. Why? Because Christ is faithful. He's going to complete that work that he's began there. He's going to beautify this whole thing. He's going to purge us of all the sin that we fight against and we swing against. You and I are just swinging at the mist right now, right? But, but Jesus isn't. Like he's dealing with every bit of that stuff that we hate and we want to see gone. And he's, he's, he's going to get rid of it, right? Conversion is one of the coolest things to see go on in ourselves and, and in others, right? Because when you see it, you know that there's no way that it's something we would consider doing, pursuing, left to ourselves. No way. I doubt myself often. I think I've shared that before, to be really honest. I know you're not supposed to do that as a pastor or, you know, a ministry leader. Um, There's times I will sit around and doubt, do I even have anything? Do I really have Christ? Do I really know him? Does he really know me? Is all of this just fake? Is it my imagination? Am I working for nothing? I know I'm probably the only one in this room that does that, right? You know what I'm saying? I'll second guess things. I doubt myself often, but one of the greatest evidences that I have and that you have of our salvation, that God loves us, that we're his, is actually found when we sin. When we sin. How it bothers me. It makes no sense. It never used to. It bothers me how, why I care so much when I fall short and I trespass and I offend God and I offend somebody else. Where does that come from? Why is that there, right? How much I hate it, how much I want it to be gone, how much I want to get rid of it. All of these are the best evidences where I got to sit back and go, okay, okay, I'm his and he's mine. He's doing a work here. He's doing a work here. The gospel word going to work on me in power and the Holy Spirit resulting in full conviction leading to repentance um, makes this thing very real to me, and it should make it very real to you. It's supernatural. There's no other explanation. And uh, it just never gets old to see this go on in people. It just never, never gets old. So repentance is one of the ways that the gospel comes out of us, just like what these guys did. This used to be their God. And it ain't anymore. This is now the God. They used to follow this, serve this, construct their whole life around this God. Now they follow this, serve this, construct their entire life around this God. It's a turning, right? That's part of the way that the gospel comes out of it. Another way, finally, finally, the way the gospel affects us, comes out of us, is in anticipation. Anticipation, which is found in verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Our home and our hope changes when the gospel comes in and changes us. Our home and our hope changes. We know it. We know it when it happens. We know that we've changed zip codes. 
when God comes in and, and we have that experience with Christ and he overwhelms us. It's an evidence of the gospel in us um, coming out of us. Anticipation. The anticipation of seeing Jesus is present in us. And it is real. It is something we really want. It is something we really desire is to see him face to face. We cannot wait to see him. We cannot wait to see him. We cannot wait to go home and to have things finalized. The person who has truly experienced and owned the gospel is a person that knows where his home is and where his home is not. I think we really need to hear this right now. I know that I do. Um, when I was putting this together this week, I, I realized examining myself against some of these thoughts and some of these texts first that um, how, how quick, how quick we can um, get this one wrong. It's just very natural to us. I am fully convinced that so much of the present hardship and frustration and depression and lack of joy that we can experience as Christians is directly due to our attempts to make this place our home. And it's not. And because it's not, so we can't, we get the depression and the frustration and the anger about the things that do not go right here. When things go wrong, plans go sideways, society gets weirder and more wicked, the only reason it affects me personally as negatively, as heavily as it does, is because I'm trying really hard or wanting really bad to make this my home. And it's not. So us knowing our citizenship, which comes as a result of the gospel, changes so much in our lives now and how we live and how we receive and live amidst so much of the stuff that we bump up, bump up against that comes into our lives, that happens around us. It's all a question of citizenship, of knowing where we belong, knowing where our home is and where it isn't. Because the reason I'm affected so much when things go wrong is directly due to my lack of anticipation for what's coming, his return and my eternal home. This is not it. Okay, If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you've been saved, knocked over, resurrected, right? Your sin's gone by the power of the gospel. This is not your home. This is no longer. In fact, the Bible says, uses words like aliens and sojourners, strangers. You and I are people now that are just passing through. We're not here to dig in. We're not here to make our bed, right? Our bed is being made. Our bed is being made. And it's going to be far greater, far better, far more comfortable than any of us can ever wrap our brains around right now. Like Jesus is on it. He's going to bring with him that which is our home. This is not it. Do you know why you get so frustrated and you get so just worn out with looking at the changes of the world and the things going on in the headlines? Because you're a stranger here. This is not 
a place that you should be fixing up for eternity because you're just passing through. Blink of an eye and then off to your final home. Don't get so caught up in it. Don't spend so much time trying to fix everything here to get it just right so that you can still die (laughs) and go somewhere else. You know what I mean? Like God knows what he's doing here and he knows what he's bringing with him. And you and I can't even put into words or imagine that which God has in store for those who love him. We can't even imagine. It's going to be so quantum beyond our, our imaginations. And it's going to be home. It's going to be home. This one doesn't compare with the one that's coming for us. And so, so much of our struggle and our challenge that we have is just in the matter of being convinced of our citizenship. Stop trying to make a place a home that can never be. That can never be. Your home is coming. And knowing that, having that anticipation of Jesus and um, everything that he's going to bring with him will allow us to go through a lot of garbage, just like these Thessalonians are, really well, in a way that doesn't even make sense. Do you notice that in verse 5, what Paul says of them? Or actually, it's in verse 6. That they received the gospel, right, in much joy in the midst of the turmoil that was going on. So they were being persecuted. They were being pressed on. They were experiencing horrible life circumstances, and yet they were able to go through those circumstances with joy. And that was almost as much of a testimony, almost as noticeable, almost as loud to the world watching than anything else was how they were walking through it. You know why? Anticipation. They know that whatever's going on, whatever's happening to them right now, has a shelf life, an expiration date. It ain't the final word. God and what he's bringing is the final word. And so it's us keeping straight where our home is, which will keep straight where our hope is. Right? And the gospel allows us to do that. When we become saved, we want to see Jesus. I don't know about you. I want to see Jesus. There's some days right now I just get up and it's like Maranatha. You know what I mean? Like, come, come, Lord, quickly. Show your glory. Show your glory. Make your appearance. Eradicate sin. Eradicate wickedness. Usher in righteousness forever. Right? By your very presence. Bring it, you know? But then the the problem is this other one, that when he comes, he's not just coming to usher in our home. That's rad for us that we got our tickets and that things are good. But he's also coming to open up a can. You know what I'm saying? Like he's coming to open up a can, and rightly so. We all love justice, and we should, right? Well, guess what? Vengeance is his, and it's coming. He's going to exercise every bit of what's deserved. And if you're not paid up in Christ, right, then you will be over your head in debt when you see him. There will be no way to pay off what you owe. But because you and I are in Christ, because the gospel has come in and affected our lives, we're paid up. Our accounts are settled. So when he comes on that day, it's not a bad visitation. It's the most glorious one we could ever hope for because we're all paid up. Our accounts are settled, which is another reason why we can anticipate and should anticipate the coming of our Lord. However, I'm going to go back to the airplane and the flight attendant. 
This is also why we cannot get lazy about the way that we give out emergency instructions. It's because there are people when that day, when he returns, where it's not going to be a good visitation, where there will be wrath and there will be exacting. And so the gospel still matters. The plane is going to go down. And we have the words of life, right? And so we must stay passionate. We must stay encouraged. We must stay excited. We must maintain the movement that God has called us to because it matters. It matters. Lord, thank you so much for um, your word always just um, really simply in a way that even I can digest brings me back to uh, true north um, to refocus me and recalibrate me on what really matters, what doesn't, and why. And, and so I thank you that your word still speaks thousands of years after this letter was written to this young church. It still speaks to this church. It still speaks to your church everywhere now. And so we thank you that, that your word doesn't fade away like the grass and like the flowers of the field, um, but that it, it will continue uh, forever. We thank you also that your word is not empty. I thank you, Lord, that, that, that your word mingled with your Holy Spirit and with power brought full conviction and resurrected this, this dead man from his sin. Um, I thank you so much that it accomplishes um, everything that you, um, that you set it out to. And I thank you, Lord, that it doesn't depend on us, God. I pray that we would just, um, just grab hold a little bit of how encouraging it is to know that you save and we don't, um, which allows us, which frees us, which sets us loose and turns us loose to go out and to share the gospel with anybody um, apart from fear. And so help us to do that, God. Help us to, to, to grab onto that and believe that and then walk in that. Um, thank you for allowing us to have front row seats to the kingdom that you're building and that you will complete. Um, in Jesus' name, amen.